heart of Jesus in a way that, um, you know, few writers have. And uh, so, again, this is a personal letter. We saw last week that Second John was a personal letter to um, a lady, Cyria, who um, John obviously had great affection for. He wrote the letter to her um, partly as a correction and to warn her about um, who she should encourage and endorse in ministry. Um, Third John, as well, he gets down to talking about a problem, and in this case it's a problem person, but even in presenting a real, you know, intentionally critical communication, it's just amazing how much positive truth that John includes in the book. And so we'll look through this. Next Wednesday we will um, go through the book of Jude, another one-chapter book, and that takes us up to, well, this Sunday we'll be doing a Christmas message, the next Sunday a New Year's message, and starting in January we will start in on the book of Revelation, which will finish our whole through the Bible um, series. And so still praying about exactly what to do on Wednesday nights. I have a lot of great ideas, but pulling them all together is going to be a challenge. But we'll be here and doing something interesting, I promise. Um, Third John, the first verse, he again um, identifies himself, John does, as the elder, same way he did in Second John. And so, again, it's a humble title, really. Um, all he's saying is, I've, I'm a spiritual leader, but I'm, I've been around longer than you. But he's not pulling rank on them at all, as you can see when you go through it. It's kind of almost a humble sort of, hey, I know I'm getting up there in years, but here's what I want to say to you. And he wrote it to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. That's um, he's going out of his way to express his love. The, uh, to call someone beloved is, is the passive form of, of the word to love. And so he's emphasizing to Gaius, you are loved. And he uses that word beloved four times just in these little 14 verses. Um, really wants to drive that home. And with John, as you know, as we've gone through First John on Sunday mornings too, John just constantly stresses the fact that we are loved. Because knowing that you are loved changes everything. People who don't believe that anyone cares about them become sour, bitter, sad, suspicious, sometimes angry and mean people because having not sensed that love, uh, feeling that value that comes from someone loving you, it's difficult to, to find yourself in a place where you can afford to be vulnerable yourself. You really can't learn to love until you've learned to be loved. And so the emphasis in the scriptures is always on let God love you, and that's going to cause you to be loved. And so here he's coming to Gaius. Now, we don't know much about Gaius. He was obviously a guy who um, most people would say was pretty well off and probably opened his home to missionaries and traveling ministers, and he was clearly involved in a church that, that John was familiar with. But there are four guys in the Bible named Gaius, um, 
and probably none of them are the same. So four different guys, that was a pretty common name in those days. But John wants him to know right away, you are loved. And then he personalizes it, whom I love in truth. Now loving in truth means to love someone based on the truth, but it's also truth as opposed to phony. And so he's, for him to say, I love you in truth, what he is saying is, I truly, sincerely love you. I really love you. I'm not just saying it. I'm not being trite. But I have the truest kind of love for you that, that I can express. And that's a nice way to start off communication, for sure. And then in verse 2, he again says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. His prayer for Gaius is that he would be successful. The word there for prosper was a word that was used to mean that business is going well for you. And, and so successful in a way. And from what most commentators believe about Gaius is he was a man who was successful because if he was in a place to be able to have other people into his house and to encourage other people and things like that as he was, he probably was, was blessed materially. And, but John doesn't treat that like it's a terrible thing. He doesn't act like, you know, oh, I want you to just be rich spiritually and I want you to be broke in every other way. In his prayer, he actually prays first that Gaius would be successful. And I think that's a nice thing to pray for someone. Um, Because throughout the scriptures, now material things aren't everything, as he goes on and points out here. And in some ways, the importance escalates as he goes through his prayers. But, you know, the Bible again and again and again connects um, material blessings with God's blessings on your life and his love for you. And you shouldn't feel um, apologetic about wanting things to go well. Um, it's something that, that uh, you know, Paul over in Second Timothy says, tell rich people not to set their eyes on riches, but tell them to understand that God gives them every t- everything to enjoy and then also remind them to share with others. And so there's that complete thing of if, if God has blessed you materially, then you should certainly enjoy it. You should thank God for it. But also you should be willing to share. The reason why God blesses us is at least partly so that we can bless others. But there's a lot more to it than that. Um, Nowadays we're hearing so much that is basically borrowed from the language of communism over the last hundred years that if you have anything, you should give it away to everyone else. And that what we need to do is redistribute the wealth and take all that we have and even it out. An egalitarianism that would say everyone ought to, be, everyone ought to have the same. Um, not only is that unrealistic, it's never worked historically, ever. It takes away incentive. It takes away the ability to enjoy because there's no reason to, there's no reason to give to others because you have to anyway. And so um, I, I just think it's important to recognize that John 
didn't apologize for saying, Gaius, I'm praying that you will profit, that you'll do well. Um, And so, first of all, he says that, and then he says also, um, not only that you would prosper in all things, but also that you would be in health. And this is a word that just refers to um, to physical well-being as well. And certainly to pray for physical blessings is something that's worthy of praying for. Boy, when you lose your health, when you go through a time of struggle, you realize why it's important. And we so often, and sometimes even in a super spiritual kind of way, we can tend to neglect our health because we're like, oh, I expect the rapture to come at any time. And, you know, some of the greatest preachers are fat guys. And, you know, we, we, we can play these kind of games to act as if physical health doesn't matter. But, you know, something that the Lord convicts me on all the time is that the Bible teaches in several places, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it should matter. And you should not only appreciate the health that God gives you, you should take advantage of the capacities that your body has to be in the best shape that you can be in so that your body will be there and available to serve the Lord in greater ways and so that you can live longer in order to be more effective for Him and for the people that you love. The Bible makes it very clear that that's important. And you can't go through the whole Old Testament with all the dietary restrictions and things like that and not realize the body is something that matters to him and health is something that matters to him. And so John was praying for Gaius that he would do well materially and that he would be blessed physically. It's not suggesting that perhaps Gaius was not healthy at the time. But he's just saying, when I pray for you, I'm praying for the total package. And, and I think in the same way, when we take care of ourselves, we should take care of ourselves financially, materially. We should be responsible with the resources that God has given us and be wise in that. I think we should take care of our physical health and our, our bodies. And of course, we are to nurture our soul and our spirit. And That's what he says next also, that those things would be in health just as your soul prospers. And so he's praying also that your, um, literally in the Greek, it's your psyche, your suke, the immaterial part of you, would also be wealthy, would also be successful. And so the idea is he's kind of saying, you are a healthy guy psychically, you are a healthy guy spiritually, if you will, or, or uh, immaterially, and I'm praying that you'll be just that healthy physically and that you'll be just that healthy in the rest of your life and how you're taken care of. But the structure of the prayer is that I'm praying that you would be really blessed and wealthy in every way possible, in a real holistic way. And... This isn't a bad thing to pray for people, certainly. Um, and, and it's more than just when he says, you know, that, that your soul prospers. The soul is more than just your relationship with God. Um, having a healthy spirit is as simple as confessing your sins, receiving his grace. Being healthy spiritually is 
relatively simple and can happen almost instantaneously with repentance. But being healthy emotionally and mentally and socially and all of the other elements, having good judgment, all of these are included when you talk about suke health. Because the soul is your mind, how you think, your will, the choices that you make, your emotions, what you are feeling. And I think a lot of times we have a tendency to neglect the soul and we think of it as just being a relationship with God. And that's why people get really confused when someone is, is spiritually, they seem totally sold out to the Lord, but at the same time they're really messed up in some ways, relationally or mentally or emotionally or whatever. And we have, in error, given people the idea that you'll automatically be healthy of soul as long as you're right with God. But it's really not the case. And Scripture goes into all kinds of detail in a whole lot of different areas that we all need healing that goes beyond just having our sins forgiven. That we need a healing in a lot of different areas of our lives. And this is something that we should take to the Lord. This is something that we should pray for each other. Because you can feel like, I mean, there are plenty of times, and there were some times today when I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good physically, I'm healing up, I worked out this morning and that was nice, and, and I felt right with God, I'm hearing from God, He's speaking to me, and that was great. But at the same time, I was just feeling bummed. And there were things in my life that I was feeling sad about and things that were just making me tired. And I, and I don't, I don't want to fall into this thing of pretending like that stuff doesn't exist. And maybe you're the type of person who's just always on top of things. I know some people who just act like, hey, God's on the throne and everything's great. Um, I suspect they're the phoniest people I know. But... <laughs> But maybe just totally in denial and pretending something that isn't the case. But what I, I guess what I want to stress to you is that we are a total package of body. And when things are happening with your body, it affects your psyche as well. It affects your soul as well. And so sometimes when you've been sick, now all of a sudden you may feel depressed. Um, something else may be wrong with your body and it makes you feel that way. Or, you know, there are, there are all sorts of things that can contribute. If all of a sudden you're, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you don't have to pretend like that doesn't bother you. Of course that bothers you. And, and being right with God isn't going to make it okay that you can't pay your rent. And so it's this whole package. Not only that, you can have a ton of money in the bank, but your body is failing. Or you can be really wealthy and really healthy, but at the same time, something's wrong inside where you're not able to connect with other people, you're not able, feel like you're not able to love, or you're not able to communicate what it is that's on your heart, or you feel like nobody likes you, or life stinks. And what, what's really awful is when all of these things work together. When your health is failing, your finances are failing, your, your mental and emotional state is failing, 
And so often, when all those areas are attacked, then you think, I must be wrong with God. God must be bugged at me. But again, this is, these are times to pray for those areas. And please, not only don't apologize for being, having a weak time in one of these areas, but take the time to seriously nurture those areas. So if I have, like tomorrow, I'm planning on, I have something to do in the evening, but you know, all day I'm just going to go spend time with the Lord, kind of let my head clear and ask Him to just be healing me physically and every other way. Um, that's what you have to do. You can't just ignore what's wrong with you and it's going to go away. Or like most men, don't go to the doctor because you're afraid they're going to give you bad news. Well, isn't that why you go to the doctor? To find out if there's something wrong? But so many of us don't even want to do that because we're sick of hearing. I mean, it's like me. I, I hate going to the dentist because I, I don't like the lectures and I don't like the discomfort, you know. But for all of us, it's important to see ourselves as, a, as a, 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 an entity that's unified and everything affects everything else. It's interesting that the, he prays that his finances and his body would match the health of his soul. And that's an interesting order because when things are right in here and in here, so often you'll make better decisions financially. You'll take care of yourself more physically. But when you are sick in your soul, it tends to catch on to every other area of your life too. So does that make sense? Does it sound too weird? Am I being like new agey or something? I, it's just, this is, this is the prayer that he's praying, and I would like people to pray that for me. And I, and I also think if I want people to pray this for me, then I need to do what I can do to be responsible with my assets and to, to take care of the temple and at the same time to make sure that I'm not neglecting everything about my soul and who I am, uh, my mind, my will, my emotions, my feelings, all, all those sorts of things. And you just can't, if you neglect any of those, you tend to end up just derailing all of them. And so, a cool prayer. Um, pray that for me anytime you want and for other people that you know. It's beautiful, really. And he says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Um, he says, Gaius, I can't even tell you how happy I am when other people come and tell me that you are living honestly, that you are walking in the truth, that you aren't faking it. You know, And there's nothing, there's nothing that you would rather hear about someone you love, whether it's someone that you've led to the Lord or it's actually your kid or someone who's like a kid to you, someone you've known for a long time. When you hear reports back from other people that say, you know, that is a sincere person. That's a genuine person. That's somebody that you get around them, you can just tell they love God. You can tell that, that what they say they believe actually comes out in the way that they live. Boy, how I would want that to be my reputation. But what a blessing it is to hear blessings about others who, 
you know, are, are doing it right, who are walking in the truth. And it's interesting, he doesn't say, I love hearing about people saying how great your doctrine is, that you've got your soteriology and your Christology and your theology proper and your eschatology and your pneumatology. Boy, you've got it down. No, it's really more basic than that. People say, I see the way they live, and they're for real. They look like Jesus. They're doing what you talk about is, is what life is supposed to be like. And there's no, no greater joy than that. And I know as a parent, when I see my kids loving God, being discerning, caring about other people, um, doing what I've always tried to model and we've always tried to teach them, but at some point they get to the point where now you can't mold and shape them anymore. You have to pray. And it's such a blessing to me when I hear from other people how my kids have been a blessing to them. And just to, to hear that is encouraging. And so he's just saying, Gaius, I not only know from my personal contact with you, but your reputation is such that you are walking right, that you are someone who is really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. We hear enough bad things about people that we know and care about that it's just nice to hear something good. Um, today, I was kind of going through a tough time, like I said, and, and um, um, Sally McRae uh, texted me and said, it's so sweet, Mackenzie, Eddie and Sally's little girl who's four, um, she said, Mackenzie was just being really quiet over kind of playing by herself. I said, honey, what are you doing? And she said, I'm praying for Pastor Dave. And I was like, I needed it. I really did. And when you hear that, you go, and I'm sure for Eddie and Sally, to know that something that they're doing and the way that they are raising her makes her have her own relationship with the Lord and a sensitivity to the Spirit that she knew that I needed prayer at that point. Um, I'm sure nothing would make a parent more proud than to see that. And John's just saying that about Gaius. He's just going, I hear that you're doing it right, that you're walking in truth. And so, sorry, little kids get to me. So now he picks up in verse 5, and again, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. The word there for strangers is the word xenos, and literally it means foreigners, someone who's different than you are. The word, um, when it talks about the qualifications of an elder, one of the qualifications of a, of a leader in the church is that they be hospitable, is the way it's translated in the English. But that word there is philoxenos, which is the word philos for, for love and xenos for foreigner. And someone who's in leadership should love foreigners. And Gaius is apparently that way. And it's, it's cool that he treats his brothers, his fellow believers who are a part of his church, the same way that he treats people who are from somewhere else. People who, in this case, perhaps he was alluding to missionaries that would come through town. 
um, that he would put them up. Um, there's some hint at that. But bottom line is, you do faithfully, that is, I can count on you, in whatever you do, you're faithful for the brothers and for the strangers and for the foreigners. You don't pick and choose. You don't like treat missionaries like they're special, but you don't treat people in the own, your own body special, but you don't do it the other way either. You just have this, um, you have this consistent, faithful way that you just treat people. You just love people and you want to help them and minister to them. That was his reputation. And he said, who have borne witness of your love before the church? If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. He says, I know how you treat people because I hear back from them. I know some people who are from where I am, and they go and see you, and they come back and go, man, that guy was so good to me. He really helped me, really encouraged me. And again, especially those who are called to minister cross-culturally, um, Paul was really encouraging him in this. And again, as he says, your love before the church, and he said, you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do that, you do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So these people are going out for the sake of the Lord. And what he's talking about is, find people who are really serving the Lord. What can you do to move them forward? What can you do to encourage them in what they're called to do and what they are trying to do? How can you reach out to them and just give them a boost? Tomorrow night I'm picking up one of our missionaries um, who's going to be here for a while, and it's a blessing. We have a, a van that we just, when missionaries are in town, we let them use it. And it's, it's a nice thing to do. You know, if you come into town and you have to pay like 60, 70 bucks a day for a rental car um, on a missionary's salary, and we have our missions conferences coming up in a couple weeks, and there'll be missionaries in town and opportunities to encourage them and to make a difference for them. And, and our goal should always be to show them that they matter because they are, as he says, they went forth for his namesake. And you do well to move them forward. Anything that we do to encourage missionaries, anything we do to encourage those who are, are serving God, guys that have gone out from our church and started other churches, um, it's so important that we let them know that that we care about them. It's so important that anyone who ministers to you, if you listen to somebody on the radio a lot, and, and boy, they just really connect with you. And I know you're probably like me, listening to the same person every day for a long time, maybe it comes and goes, but at different times of your life, your walk, and what you're doing, different people really connect with you and minister to you. And I think it's important to just give them some encouragement. And you know, we, uh, the, our whole ministry down there to Pedregales is so special, not only just to help the people there, but to encourage those who are there every day ministering to those people. And it's why, even though I'm not, if I never traveled out of California again in my life, I would be totally fine. But at least once a year, I'll go halfway around the world 
to minister to some of our missionaries because it means a lot to them that somebody from here will go all the way over there. And my teaching, I'm sure, when I go somewhere else where they don't understand English, it has to be terrible. Translating me has to be a nightmare, but they still want you to do it because it feels like people over here care about people over there. And sometimes we should go out of our way, and I think everyone should pray about an opportunity at some point to go on a short-term missions trip, to just even go visit one of our missionaries and hang out with them for a few days and encourage them, or to send them little care packages, or to write to them and let them know that you're praying for them and that you love them. It's, it's a way that you participate in what they have been called to do. And so Gaius is a guy who was definitely doing that, and John was saying, I hear about you doing that, and I want you to know that really makes a difference. That really means a lot. And it's interesting, he says, he says send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So ultimately, how we treat those who serve God is how we treat God. And I might look at someone who's a minister in a various ministry or they're a missionary or whatever, and I might, I might look at them and say, I don't know if that person's really worth my trouble. But John would say, Are the, is God worth your trouble? Is encouraging someone who is doing their best to serve him important enough to you? Has God done enough for you that it's worth doing that? And boy, that changes our perspective a lot, doesn't it? When you start thinking of God is saying, treat them the way I deserve to be treated. And not just to give them your leftovers and to just, you know, toss a bone to them every once in a while, but to really find a way to treat them special. That's what Gaius apparently did, and John was really blessed by that. And he, he said, they don't take anything from the Gentiles. Um, that word Gentiles isn't really doesn't necessarily mean Gentile. It's the Greek word ethnos, from which we get ethnicity, and, it, and it's just a, a particular kind. And what he's saying is these people aren't going in order to take something from the people they're ministering to. They should be supported by people who are here, who are blessed, who are able to do it, so that they don't have to go somewhere and figure out a way to have the people they're trying to minister to support them. Now, the Bible makes it really clear that those who, who work in the gospel are to be paid by the gospel, that, that pastors are to be paid, um, that those who serve in a teaching ministry are worthy of extra pay, according to what the Bible says. Um, but at the same time, the call is for us to look at those who aren't in a position to be able to be paid because they're called to minister to people who just can't afford it, that other people who can afford it are to help them out. And so that's why with the offering that we receive at church, and we don't take an offering on Wednesday nights, but we do on Sundays because people want to contribute to the Lord's work. We want them to be able to do it. But all the money that people give doesn't just um, go to what we do in this church. We spend a lot of money on various outreaches and missionaries and things like that because most of them are in a place where they can take an offering and they don't get much. And so to be able to help them out um, is something that's just a part of why we have what we have. 
We shouldn't feel guilty for what we have. We shouldn't take everything we have and give it to them. Then it would just be gone. But to be able to help them so that they don't have to find a way to squeeze blood out of a turnip and where they've been called to minister is something that John is pointing out here. But then he says, he wraps this little section up by saying, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. He said, when you help them on their way, you are standing side by side with them, ministering arm in arm. You are participating. What you do by encouraging them and supporting them is every bit as important as what they are doing. You are working right alongside them. You don't have to you know, go do that yourself in order to be a significant part of the work. You can partner with others who are called to do it. And for some people, it's just not practical for them to go out and, and um, evangelize around the world. Um, some people aren't in a position financially or with their kids or they haven't really sensed that call <clears throat> or they don't have the gifts or in some other way the, the door has been closed on that. But every one of us can partner with those who are doing that work and that's something that's really important for us to understand and to do. As much as it is to encourage the people who are here in ministry I mean, maybe you don't feel like you could handle children's ministry. But I guarantee, and those of you who work children's ministry know this is true, when someone comes along and just thanks you for what you do, it, it moves you forward. It encourages you. And, and, and it, it's like standing with someone in what they are doing. The same thing goes for every other ministry in the church and outside the church we all sometimes need a little, you know, push forward, a little feeling that, hey, you're not alone. There are others who stand by you. And so, um, and it's interesting because he's, he's saying this as we're fellow workers for the truth, and now he's going to go into a section where contrary to what Gaius was, he's now going to get to probably the point of why he actually wrote and to talk about this guy, Diotrephes, um, who was the exact opposite of this. And, but he's setting up Gaius first as being, and this is in good persuasive communication, this is what you want to do, is if you have something difficult, you sandwich it with things that are positive. You don't come to convince someone that they're wrong by starting out and telling them that you're wrong. You know when people have done that to you, it doesn't work. But when you come in with some real positive things, slip something negative in, and then he's going to again come up with a positive thing, he, he pointed out things that you needed to hear, but in a way that you hardly could be offended by it because he had so many good things to say as well. So the contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes here is the contrast in Verse 9, it says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Diotrephes was a guy who, well, where it says, who loves to have the preeminence, that's all one word in the Greek. And what it means, um, really, is that he loves to be first. <laughs> he, it, it's the word philos for love, 
and protuo is the verb form of protos, which means in front or first. And what he's saying is here's a guy that loves to be first, so he's not cooperating with others. He's creating trouble. Now, see the contrast? You have on the one hand Gaius who is saying, if somebody else is serving God, I want to stand by their side and be fellow workers with them. I'm on their team. But now you have this guy, Diotrephes, who is saying, I don't want to stand side by side with anyone. I want to be up front. I want to be the center of attention. I want it, I want it to be about me. And anyone who starts getting too close to being equal with me or side by side with me, I'm going to eliminate those people because I have to be first. It has to be about me. Now, there are plenty of diatrophies in this world, without a doubt. And they lack the humility that it takes to be a fellow worker, and instead their pride and their ego causes them to want to be first, to want to be in front. It's the same attitude that, that James and John had at one point, and so John knows about it, and is probably embarrassed by now, as he's an old man at this point, probably in his 90s. Um, John is probably still reminded every once in a while. Remember when your mom went to Jesus and asked if you, you and your brother could sit at his right and left hand? Well, I'll tell you this, man. John has come a long ways since then, hasn't he? Now he's lived a long life. This book was probably his last. Um, he'd probably already written the book of Revelation by this time. And now he's getting up close to 100 years old. And he's realizing how important humility is and how destructive pride is. And so he's telling Gaius, and in contrasting him with himself, and saying, boy, there are some people who just love to be in front. There are some people who have to win. They want to be the center of attention. And he says, that's in stark contrast to the way that you are. And I just want you to see what kind of damage this does. Loving to have the preeminence. And as a result, he doesn't receive us at the end of verse 9. Because his love for prominence causes him to not respect the authority of people who are actually in positions of ministry. There, there's no indication that Diotrephes was a pastor or an elder. He, he was perhaps a wealthy person who liked to exert influence. But he was not in submission to the word of John, the disciple who was closest to Jesus, and he's like, I don't receive you because this is about me. And people who love to be in front, I mean, there are two ways to get in front. One is to just really do your best, but the easier way is to pull others down. And if you can destroy people who are in front of you, it can put you in a position where you think you're doing better. It's like the difference between <coughs> running in a, in a marathon and hoping that the runners around you do well because they will pace you. And then when it comes down towards the finish, everyone will do their best and everyone will feel like they did better as opposed to somebody who's running and just going, God, please make that person trip. Please help somebody. Or, you know, like the, the Jets coach over the weekend. The guy's running down the sidelines and he just sticks his foot out there and trips him. Could have blown his knee out and 
destroyed the guy's career. Um, I don't know what's more disturbing, the fact that the guy would do such a thing or the fact that I thought, if I was a Jets fan, I don't know how I'd feel about that. But, you know, they suspended the guy and everything. But do you want to win by doing your best? There's nothing wrong with wanting to win. Paul said, I run the race like I intend to win it. But it's how do you win it? And a person who is driven by a desire to be in front will run the race by tearing other people down. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. And as John says, um, he said, therefore if I come, I will call to mind his deeds. We'll talk about it some more, which he does. Prating against us, that word means blowing bubbles, like babbling, it was an expression that just meant somebody's just running off at the mouth. With malicious, literally hurtful words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who wish to, and he puts them out of the church. He said, guys like this, they drive people from the church. They drive people away from the Lord because their attitude, their selfishness, their ego and pride, it, they push everyone away because they want to be at the top of the heap. And when they don't get it, what they do is they talk against those who are serving the Lord, and they say things that they know will hurt them. They intentionally inflict emotional distress because they know if they can successfully do that, they can tear down others, which can then elevate themselves, and elevating themselves is really what they want. And I, I can't emphasize enough how dangerous this desire to be in front can be. The desire for power, the desire for influence, the desire to control the church and those who are called to lead in the church is just utterly destructive. And I hear stories every week of people who are being destroyed by those who, they can't do the ministry themselves. They couldn't get up and teach a Bible study if their life depended on it. But boy, it's so easy to put other people down and to be like a, a power broker in the things of the Lord, in the work of the Lord. It's yesterday we had a, had a um, um, memorial service here after having a funeral for a gal in our church who went to be with the Lord. And one thing that I said as we were preparing for the service, I, I told the gal whose mom had died, I said, I do not think you should ever open it up to anybody from the audience to come up and speak. Because I've seen that, and I've had it just go really, really badly. And I said, the people who want to come up and speak are probably the worst ones to do it. And so I said, and I do this every time I do a funeral, pick three or four people that you know really well, and you're sure they'll do a good job, and let them come up and represent everyone else and speak. And she said, fine. So right before the service, I said, so, did you pick the people? She goes, you know, I think we'll just let anybody who wants to come up and do it. And I'm like, it's time to start. Um, it's your mom who died. Okay. This will be the last time I ever do it. I will walk away from a funeral before I ever let this happen again. Because a couple people got up, and it, and it does. At first, there's some nice things that people say, and then it brings out every nut in the crowd. So like, here's a chance for me to be up front. And so, I mean, 
one God, guy got up there and started saying that, that she, she died because God was judging her for her sin. Um, another guy comes up at the end after I'm coming up and ready to go, and he goes, the Holy Spirit's really telling me to speak, and her ex-husband asked me if I... I go, fine, it's gone on an hour and a half now, go ahead. And he gets up there and he goes, you know, I didn't really know Julie. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he starts talking about his mom and his sister and how, you know, his sister, when she was, you know, pregnant, she didn't want a nurse, and so she bound her breasts so that she wouldn't have milk. And, how, and I'm just like, is this a nightmare or what? And I was so, I'm like, okay, I could go up there and uh, Mike Coletta was back on the board saying, my finger was on the mute button. If you had just turned around, I would have shut him up. And, you know, but I'm like, it's a funeral, and it's awkward. And so, but I was so upset by that time, I just got up and I said, you know, I had a message that I prepared, but let me just tell you how to accept Jesus, and we'll leave it at that. And I had already given a little message at the, at the graveside anyway, but it, it, I walked away from that thinking the worst people to ever put up front are the people that really want to be there. And, and in so many cases, the ambition, the thought that, and I, I mean, this is a funny thing for me to say, because here I am up here, um, and I don't, you know, I feel like God kind of dragged me kicking and screaming, and, and people who know me know that it wouldn't take much to get me to go, fine, let somebody else preach. And, and I get criticized whenever I say things like that, but I mean, I really don't, I love seeing God change people's lives, but I really don't just love the power side of church or, you know, running things, calling the shots, or even getting up here and performing. I, I don't have a hunger for that. I don't have a need for that. If God took it away from me tomorrow, I would be totally fine in just doing whatever God has called me to do. But most people who are dying to get up here shouldn't. And, and in, you know, because there's something about desiring to be in front that is a very destructive thing, is a very damaging thing. And it's one of the reasons why I love, you know, a lot of the people in our church who are doing some of the greatest ministry are people that many of you don't even know because they help behind the scenes, they have, um, they're involved in home fellowships and they just encourage people. They pray for people every day. There are so many ways to contribute to ministry that, frankly, is more significant than being up front and being in that position. I am not the most important person in the church by far. I am the pastor of the church, and I have to take responsibility for the direction of the church. But my biggest task as a pastor, I believe, my first task as a pastor is to keep myself from ever taking over and just making it about me. And my second task as a pastor is to make sure that nobody else takes over. And so I'm like the old joke about the airplane cockpit of the future, where it just has one man and one dog. And the man is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to bite the man if he touches anything. And in a way, that's, to me, that's part of what leadership is, is when... When you're humble, and I mean, I don't know how humble I am. A lot of people tell me I'm humble, which makes me think I'm probably not as humble as people think I am. But, but maybe I'm just tired, and that seems like humble. But, <laughs> but when people see 
weakness, when people see that I'm not going to just grab everything and make it happen, it attracts people who want to run the church because they go, well, Dave doesn't seem to you know, be ready to take over, so I think he needs my help and I'll do it. Um, one lesson I've learned several times, and it's been a difficult lesson to learn, but I think I've learned it for good, is um, people who partner with us in ministry, the very first qualification is they have to be humble. I've, I have had my heart broken so many times when I tried to help a prideful person learn humility in ministry. And I, and I try to teach it to them by being that way to them as much as I can, but I found something out. You really can't break someone of pride. It's a, it's a character quality. Um, it's just a problem that if people have it, it's not going to go away if you give them attention, if you, if you let them be in front. The only way you can lose pride is by being in back and, and, and not being given those opportunities. And I've, I've been guilty sometimes of thinking, well, this person is prideful and egotistical, but I know it's because of their insecurity. So if I will give them a boost and help them out and, and give them maybe more respect than anyone else does, maybe they'll take that challenge and, and really grow into humility. But I've learned that what John is warning Gaius about here is something that you just have to be aware of. And this is true with anyone you deal with in your life. If you find somebody who just loves to be in front, who loves to be ahead of others, be very, very careful. Because that's something that God hates. It's one of the things that just, you know, and this kind of speaking against those who are doing ministry when you're back and trying to promote yourself, it, it, the Bible tells us that God hates the one who sows discord among brethren. It's something that he hates. And, and so we can't fix people like Diotrephes. You just have to make sure that you're not giving them promotion. You're not allowing them to... You're not admiring their stick-to-itiveness. Sometimes... Diotrephes will be one of the busiest guys in the church. But it's a question of why are you busy? Um, what, are you, what are you looking for out of this? And so John said, man, he's hurt me by what he said. And he's talking nonsense. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. And I'm going to confront him. And, but it's not just like, a lot of times you hear people say, oh, you know, you shouldn't say anything about anybody else because... Um, you know, you should go to him personally, Matthew 18. John didn't. I mean, John just comes right out and tells Gaius about him, and he hasn't talked to him yet. He didn't hide it. I, I think sometimes we could use a little bit more straightforwardness. I have felt times in the past where, you know, somebody would leave the church and, and be bugged at me, and they were talking to people about me, and I, I try to not say anything bad about anybody who's gone and and yet, I think sometimes there are people who become innocent victims because Diotrephes is talking away, and you're not like John going, no, I'll set the record straight. I'm not going to hide from him. Uh, this is who he is. This is why he does what he does, and I'm telling you the truth. Um, that's something that I don't do well. I don't expect I'll ever do well. Uh, and I'll be honest with you why. Um, 
when people say hurtful things, it hurts you. And it affects your flesh. And I don't ever want to use the pulpit to go blast people. And, and so as a result, I mean, on my Wednesday night crowd, I feel like I can talk pretty frankly with you because you're extra devoted, I think. That's my opinion. I'm sorry for those of you who listen to this on the internet and think I'm, you know, but, but you know, it's still, I am afraid. I'm scared to death of my own flesh because I've seen what happens when people get focused too much on diatrophies. Everybody's got diatrophies, but when you focus on them too much, it can turn you into something that you aren't. And I like the way that John addresses this because his emphasis is on Gaius, and in the end he talks about Demetrius. He's straight up front about Diotrephes. But you can tell that it hasn't just beaten him down. You can tell it just hasn't discouraged him so much that he's all jaded and, and disappointed about it. And so, you know, uh, sometimes people go, well, you ought to tell people about this or that or other churches and what they're doing or false teachings or whatever, and you know, I just wouldn't know if I was doing it for the right reasons or if it's just I'm angry personally or I'm hurt personally. So that's just by way of explanation. It's why I don't do what John was doing here and just call people out. Um, and most of the people that I see who call out other people, uh, it seems to me they're not really doing it for the, for the right reasons. So um, this is a tough one, but I'm just confessing this to you. If there's a weakness... Um, on my part in this, it's that I don't like to, to be negative at all. I know there's a time when we need people to be frank with us, and I try to do that. I try to at least be clear enough that people who read between the lines can kind of figure things out, but here John is just coming right out and saying it, and I, I, you have to respect that. And he says, when I get there, you're going to hear a lot more. <laughs> be and, and, and his reason seems to be because... Diotrephes is driving people away from church. Now, you know, you might say, and I was thinking about talking about this today a little bit, you go, no big deal, somebody leaves the church, they go to another church. And that's true, and people around here do that a lot. I, yesterday I met several people who were like, oh, Pastor Dave, yeah, we used to go to your church, and then we went to this church, and now we go to this church, and then, but we're not church hoppers, we just, you know, go to different <laughs> churches all the time. And it's, again, it sounds self-serving if you knock that, but here's the problem. If, if someone gets driven away from one church and they go to another church, the same thing's going to happen again. When they get driven from that church, at some point they just get to the point where they're just over church. Because, and, and I know some of you have been through exper several bad experiences in church, and, and you've had every reason to to be completely discouraged. And probably some of you have gone through times when you just felt like you didn't have a church because the same kind of behavior that drives you out of one church drives you out of another one. And to me, if someone wants to leave our church, does it hurt my feelings? Of course, I'm human. But they go to another church that's great, I'm happy. If they find a place that they like better than they like here, um, in the final analysis, that's fine. Except... Whoever it is that drove them there or whoever it is that drew them there is moving them one step forward toward actually just being done with church completely. Because I think for most people, in my experience, you can only handle changing churches a few times for negative reasons. I mean, it's great if everyone would leave a church and go to another church for a positive reason. 
That's what most people say they're doing when clearly it's not why. But at some point, you just have to decide, this is church, and this is where I am. And I, you know, I, I so appreciate people who just hang in there and are dependable. I mean, there are some of you tonight who were here at this church long before I was. And you went through awful things, and you'd have every reason to, to leave, but you hung in there. And the church has changed. It's changing all the time. God does different things, brings along different people. But I love people who just go, no, this is, this is my church. And it seems like what John was so upset about, Diotrephes about, was that he was someone who, in order to see his ego gratified, he would pull people away from church and drive people away from church rather than to encourage people to remain in a place where they could be committed and learn to feel at home and be a part of things. And that really made John mad, so much so that he said, when I get there, I'm dealing with this. We're going to confront this phony. And he's not living in truth. He's a hypocrite. And so he says, and then kind of in closing it, in that section, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Diotrephes usually thinks he's doing good, but clearly the end result of it is not that because the motives aren't good, the ego's not right. And so he's saying, look, just cut to the chase. Look at the fruit of somebody's life. If they are doing good, they're good. If they're doing evil, they're evil. Good people don't do this kind of stuff, what Diotrephes was doing. Good people are not self-centered. Good people do not promote themselves. Good people do not tear other people down in order to put themselves up. Good people don't drive people from the church. And, you know, I always hear about people who are going, so-and-so, you know, a pastor, yeah, he had a lot of problems, but, I mean, he's really a good teacher, or he's really a good guy, and I, it's all I can do to just bite my tongue and go, no, if you're a good teacher, you don't do that kind of stuff. Good teachers don't compromise themselves morally. Good teachers don't live in a way that's, that's hypocritical or contradictory to the Scriptures. Good people don't do things designed to hurt others. Good people don't live by their ego. And so he's just going, no, look, you just look at somebody's life, you can tell. Don't think that everyone's just kind of a mixture in a way. But the truth is, he says, just call good good and call evil evil. And so, but then he says, now Demetrius, he's a guy who has a good testimony. The word there, martyreo, he's witnessed and seen Later, the word came to mean to be martyred because when you would give your testimony in those days, you could get killed for it. But he says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all. So he's contrasting him with Diotrephes and again, closing the loop from Gaius, who has this great reputation, and now he's going to Demetrius and he goes, here's an example of a guy who does it right. Here's a guy who is humble, who doesn't want to put himself in leadership. He doesn't want to, you know, call the shots and do it his way. He's a guy who everybody knows. He's not like that. He doesn't do things to try to hurt people. He's one who is advancing those who are doing work of ministry. But he says, uh, and from the truth itself, 
He has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. If you just know the truth, you can see it. And we also personally bear witness, martyreo again, and you know that our testimony, our martyria, is true. The word true there, aletheia in the Greek, is the word that means hidden, and then the prefix a, which means not. And he's basically saying, look at this guy. He lives in a glass house. He's not, he doesn't have a hidden agenda. He's not like working behind the scenes. He's up front. And everybody knows you can trust him. He's honest. He's not pretending. He's not, you know, living a dual life. It's just what you see is what you get with him. And that's the best testimony that we can ever have is that we live consistently with what we say we teach. And, and that we allow the truth of God to be true in our lives. That we're not wearing a mask. That we're not faking it. And so he goes, Demetrius is that way. And, and, and you know our testimony is true. John goes, I'm, I'm shooting straight with you. You don't even like probably to hear some of what I'm saying. But I'm telling you the truth. And I'm telling you, everybody who knows Demetrius knows, yeah, this guy's the real thing. This guy's the real deal. Our goal should always be that people who would come in contact with us would go, that person's real. That person is, is an actual person who is honest. Because when we see, even if we're telling the truth, but it sounds like a lie, people think they can't trust us. They can't count on us. Anytime people act all super spiritual in a phony way, they act like somebody you'd see on Christian television. It, you know, it's like that doesn't win anyone over. What that is is like I'm afraid that if people see the way I really am, they won't believe in God, so I better act a certain way. So is that what you want other people to get? That they'll learn to act just like you? That they'll learn to pretend just like you? And no, if, if the truth doesn't win people over then it would be morally and ethically wrong to use lies to win people over. It can be done. It happens all the time. But is that really what God wants? Absolutely not. And somebody who has not figured out how to live in a healthy way themselves should never be telling other people how to do it or what to do. It's one of the biggest problems with so many of the helping professions. And I'm not blasting the whole profession of professional psychology because they have an important role to play. And I thank God for many of them who have really been used by God. But at the same time, it's so many people who choose to do that with their lives are just a complete mess when you get to know them. And, and once you get to know them, you think, why should I do what you're telling me to do? It's not even working for you. The same thing goes for pastors who like are just miserable, unhappy, phony people who, you know, as soon as church is out, they're out the back door. They don't want to see anybody. They don't want anybody to know to talk to them or anything else. There's this weird off-balance sort of thing where basically what you're saying is, this isn't working for me, but maybe it'll work for you. Or at least I need you to think it'll work for you so you'll keep supporting me so I can keep my gig going and stay in front. And I'm sorry if that sounds overly jaded, but I'm just telling you the truth. That's way too common. And God never wants us to do that. He doesn't want us to do him a favor by us being phony. 
you, would be, you will do God more good if you go to somebody and say, hey, I'm struggling big time. In fact, last night I got drunk, and I feel like an idiot for doing that because I've already known what it does to my life, but I'm still struggling with it. But, you know, I know God loves me, and He's forgiven me, and I'm, and I'm just going to trust Him and keep moving forward. That's a way better witness than for you to lie to people and pretend like you're something that you aren't and hope that somehow they don't find out who you are. The ultimate slap in the face to the Lord is to think that what he has done in your life isn't really good enough, and so you have to make up some other stuff. And, and John just so appreciates the witness of somebody who's just true. And he's already said, Gaius, you're true, I know it. And he goes, Demetrius, true. Diotrephes, eh, not at all. So then he, he finally says, uh, I had many things to write. You know, he gets going. I mean, look at me. I could have read these 14 verses to you in five minutes or less, and we could have been out of here. So you can see why he could get off on some of these things. He goes, man, there was a bunch more stuff I wanted to write, but my hand's tired. I don't wish to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you shortly. Just like he had said in Second in John, he goes, a lot more I want to say, but I want to say it face to face. I want to just be right there with you. So you can read what, how I'm saying it, what I'm saying. You can ask questions, get clarification. But also there's just so much more I have to say to somebody who I know I love so much and who I care about so much, who I'm so proud of, who I, I want to encourage you, I want to move you forward. So he says, hopefully I'll see you shortly and we'll speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you and greet the friends there who know me by name. Go to each one of them and say, hey, John said to tell you hi, tell you here's good things about you. So cool little letter that John wrote as an old man. Um, And again, as in everything John writes, his heart comes out through the whole thing about do this life honestly and for real, Don't be fake. Be honest about your sin. Confess it. Um, Walk in the truth. Work with others. Maintain humility. Don't be overly ambitious. Um, and, And love each other. And that's his heart. That was the heart that he picked up from Jesus. And uh, that's what he wants us to know. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this reminder from your word. Wow, there's so much in these little verses and so much that we need, each of us. Lord, any of us are fooling ourselves if we think that at times there isn't some some wanting to be in front, some selfishness, some manipulation. Um, That's the temptation that we all face. And Lord, we all come short of your standard for love. And we all come short of having a a, a soul that is at peace and a body that's nurtured and taken care of and the rest of our business life being in order. There's so many things here that you could just, there are words in this little book that you could talk about for a month. But Lord, you know what each of us needs. And I pray that you would just take your truth from your word 
and apply it to our hearts the rest of this week. Make a difference in us because of what you've told us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. God, you're so good.